Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Central African Republic, and we are joined by Larry Wallers, a former U.S. ambassador to Central African Republic and the former deputy special representative for the United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in the Central African Republic, also known as MINUSCA. Nicole, what's the history of U.S. policy towards Central Africa? So the United States assigned an ambassador to the Central African Republic, also known as CAR, in 1961, one year after its independence. And the United States, according to the first ambassador, had, quote, very few interests, none really that could not have been handled by a small consular establishment, end quote. Eventually, a small USAID mission was established, something that, quote, we wanted more than CAR did, end quote, recalled the ambassador. There was eventually a Peace Corps program, too. The French were the dominant players, with the French advisors in every ministry. CAR was very much oriented towards Europe, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had one official that covered Europe and another that handled the rest of the world, according to the United States. While generally aligned with the West, the Central Africans in December 1960 agreed to exchange ambassadors with the Soviet Union. Many of the country's senior officials today subsequently received their training in the USSR. On New Year's Eve 1965, Army Chief Jean Bedel Bokassa overthrew the country's first government. The United States had decent relations with Bokassa at first, though he was deemed unreliable and unpredictable. Bokassa wanted good ties with Washington, and he threw out the Chinese communists within days of taking power. Bokassa hoped that ejecting the Chinese would result in more U.S. foreign assistance. Relations, however, were rocky and always seemed to be on the knife's edge. After Bukasa survived a coup attempt in 1976, he executed the embassy's general service officer, a third country national who had business ties with the coup plotter. That did not lead to a, quote, happy feeling in the embassy, end quote, according to a former ambassador. Bukasa has also slapped the Italian ambassador because he thought Italy's foreign assistance was too low. That sent chills through the diplomatic community. Bokassa declared himself Emperor of Central Africa with the coronation ceremony that rivaled Napoleon's in 1977. The United States thought this was the most extraordinary piece of foolishness, but was cautious about private and public statements seeking to preserve Bokassa's support for U.S. positions at the U.N. In 1979, the French removed Bokassa and returned the country's first president, David Daco, to power. The United States wasn't complicit in the ouster, but it welcomed the change in regime. Bukasa's erratic behavior and human rights abuses were increasingly problematic. Daco proved not to be much of an improvement, though, and he was removed in 1981. Toward the end of the 1980s, a grassroots campaign for political reform and real elections gathered strength in CAR. 
U.S. ambassadors played key supporting roles, interjecting themselves in the process and using their, quote, moral authority, as one former ambassador claimed, to support a sovereign national conference and insist on a second election in 1993 after the first result was canceled. The opposition candidate, Ange Philippe Patasse, was on the verge of winning, and the U.S. ambassador escorted the chief justice during the final tabulation. Patasse's autocratic tendencies, as well as his determination to promote his own ethnic group, quickly destabilized the country. Carr experienced several mutinies and coup attempts, resulting in several non-combatant evacuations of the U.S. Embassy. One ambassador had to manage a virtual U.S. Embassy from Yaoundé and later from Washington. A U.N. mission was established, but Carr's stability continued to deteriorate, and Patasse was overthrown in 2003. His successor, Francois Bozizé, who received crucial assistance from Chad, also faced rebellions, and the north and northeast parts of the country were regularly in turmoil, despite the establishment of a second UN mission and deployment of a European mission force. In 2013, confronted by well-armed forces, mostly composed of Chadians and Defarians, marching down from the north, Bozizé fled the country. The new leadership, known as Seleka, proved to be both incompetent and brutal. The country quickly devolved into terrible violence along religious and ethnic lines. Although the Obama administration had shuttered the embassy, it eventually took a more active stance in response to mass atrocities. The president delivered an audio message, and the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Samantha Power, traveled there. The United States was supportive of the deployment of French troops and the economic community of Central African States Peacekeeping Force, which later became a U.N. mission and then turned into MINUSCA, the UN's third mission to Carr in as many decades. In 2016, Festa Tordera was elected the country's third civilian leader. Still in power today, his government has been embattled and it welcomed the support of Russia, which received permission from the UN to sell weapons to the struggling Central African military. That opened the door for Russian mercenaries to inundate the country, even installing a Russian national as Tordera's national security advisor. This has caused great anxiety among the US and French officials who regard Russian involvement as a deeply problematic for a host of reasons, including but not limited to the theft of the country's resources, including its diamond industry. So with that, Judd, do you want to take a shot at a major U.S. success or policy failure in CAR? I think our engagement in CAR is one of these classic cases where our engagement is so episodic, so inconsistent, that I don't think we see what's coming around the corner very effectively or not able to respond to it. I'm certainly not saying that we could have maybe changed the trajectory dramatically in this country. But when we saw Patase, the problems under his government, and certainly some of the instability under Bozize, we had a very small embassy. This wasn't a focus for the U.S. government. And then we ended up in really deep problems, whether it was the ethnic cleansing that you mentioned, Nicole, or the fact that the Russians are now involved. So I think the failure here is sort of taking our eye off the ball repeatedly in car and not having a consistent focus so that when problems become really bad and really nettlesome, that we're able to respond in an effective way. But Ambassador, let me ask you, you can comment on that, but more importantly, we really want to hear what you think the Biden administration's strategy towards this country should be. Thanks for that really easy question. And I dearly wish I had a clear, easy answer for you. I'm going to oversimplify, but I think we need to start focusing less on process, right? On putting in place elections, on putting in place training and on peace talks and focus on outcomes, specifically who over a limited time frame can actually establish security and rule of law in the country in a sustainable way. We know that won't be the armed groups. 
We know that won't be the neighbors. We know it won't be the Russians. For the Russians, this is a commercial enterprise. It's not about governance. And it can't be MINUSCA either, because MINUSCA doesn't have or doesn't perceive to have that mandate. So by process of elimination, that just leaves the card government. The government's the only real potential solution. And unfortunately, Trudeau and the elite haven't been standing up. They have, over the last five years, privileged corruption and domestic power squabbles over competent uh, governance. Parallels, I think, with what we're talking about happened in Afghanistan, albeit in a much smaller way. So that's partly Trudeau and the elite's fault, but it's partly ours, because they're responding to the incentive the international community gives them. So the question is, how do we change the incentives to get the current leadership to do the right thing? That's the only way out of a very bad status quo. And that's both simple and, of course, incredibly hard. I definitely want to come back and ask you a question about that. But first, Nicole, one of the things that the ambassador is saying is going to be really hard for the system to to sort of digest, which is that we love process. We're all about process. And ambassador is absolutely right that it's actually outcomes that matter, not necessarily input. So how do you take his advice and make it work in the interagency? You know, this is one where, like the ambassador says, we can't afford to get bogged down in endless interagency process that would be using sort of the same old tools. Those tools are great tools and they work in a lot of places. But in a situation like CAR, where we have seen time and again what happens when there isn't cohesion to our approach, it is really important for history to be our guide. I think one of the things that the ambassador is stressing that's so key here is figuring out how this becomes a sustained international effort, one that is realistic about what goals it can accomplish. Luckily, at the moment, because Linda Thomas-Greenfield is both our ambassador to the United Nations and because she, of course, is Assistant Secretary for Africa in her previous gig, she has a particular expertise that crosses over these two areas. And this is one where I think for the interagency to think hard about how to fast track some of the interventions that might be possible is going to be really important and is doable, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to get attention on a place like CAR when you have leaders in the USG who really know a lot of these tensions. I think, you know, you've sort of indicated this, Judd, that this is really about the cost of inaction. So to continue to sort of rest on what we've done already is not going to be terribly useful. And we know that that vacuum gets filled, for example, by Russia. You know, the stories of what mercenaries, groups like Wagner have been doing in the Central African Republic are incredibly concerning as they pursue that commercial enterprise. So what is the what there, right? This is, as the ambassador said, the really challenging piece. You can get the interagency in place. You could have all of the people who are ready to focus on this, which is an easier lift right now than I think typically inside the U.S. government. But what do you do? And that's where it comes becomes time to shake things up. And Ambassador, you intimated this in your earlier answer, but do you have a sense of what something more radical, one big idea, or, or perhaps several, even if there's some real risk tolerance involved there, that those in decision-making positions should be considering now? Well, another great hard question. I do think we need to start if we agree that the future, the only potential way out is by having an effective government and effective governance. 
we start by analyzing the predicament and the situation that President Tuadera sees himself in and has seen himself in since 2016. I know Tuadera, and I actually think he came into power with the right intentions. But he also faced, from his perspective, I'm extrapolating out here, some significant constraints. Number one, he was weak from a military standpoint, and the international community wasn't helping him. It was, was bizarre that the elected government of the country was the only party uh, to the conflict that didn't have, have access to, to arms, right? He was weak from a political, from a domestic political standpoint. He had no great ethnic group of movement behind him. He wasn't a military guy, so he had to worry about, you know, the, was the military really behind it? He was at the top of an administration that was exhausted, without resources, and was fundamentally corrupt from top to bottom. He was surrounded by an entourage who expected to reap personal rewards in return for their loyalty to him. So it was bleak. He needed a way out. The international community, focused on process, not outcomes, wasn't giving him a way out. And the Russians did, or at least they seemed to. But it was a Faustian bargain, which I suspect, have you know, no way of saying this for sure, but I suspect that he's more and more under the thumb of the Russians, who are, after all, out in this to make money, and really doesn't know how to get out of this. And so the question then becomes, how do we help Twadera help himself? That's the hard question. And there are, I think, a number of things we can think about. It's not something where I presume to have all the answers. Ambassador, you've given us a lot to think about. And, you know, I'm listening to the words that we've said in this episode, grave and, and misfortune and tragedy. And I just think we should end on a counterpoint. Can you share with us something for our listeners about the culture and life in Car that perhaps would give us a fuller picture of this country and its people to sort of make sure that we don't leave them with this dire, it is a dire situation, but that doesn't mean there isn't light and life in this country. What would you tell our audience? Absolutely. And, and that's why I've continued to follow the country and, and, and love working with people there, despite all of this. You know, I think outsiders tend to perceive Qatar as being a country that has always been in eternal conflict with a massive ethnic and religious hatred. And actually, the opposite is true. Historically, this was one of the countries where ethnic groups and religious groups coexisted extremely well. There just weren't any huge ethnic cleavages. There was lots of intermarriage. People worked together very well. It's, the ethnic conflict is actually quite recent and so, in some ways imported. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.